Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. On this episode, I'm going to be going through a paper that I wrote actually quite a long time ago during my time at Moody Bible Institute. This was uh, one of my systematic theology papers dealing with what is called the Munis Triplex or the threefold office of Christ as mediator. If you enjoy this content or any of the other content I put out here on the Freed Thinker podcast, please consider becoming a sponsor. You can become a sponsor by clicking on the, <laughs> strangely enough, the become a sponsor uh, page uh, on the blog, or you can find it uh, on Patreon, or you can uh, follow it on Facebook. Uh, please subscribe uh, to uh, this podcast from wherever you get your podcasting needs. If you're just downloading singular episodes, you're actually missing out a lot of content that I don't advertise for. I put a lot of episodes up. I put up a whole series of the Freed Way Thinker, which are kind of unscripted, smaller, uh, you know, 10 to 20 minute episodes, sometimes under 10 episodes dealing uh, with my reflections off the cuff, dealing uh, with some apologetical or theological issues. I don't actually advertise those on on Facebook or around. So if you're not subscribed, you might not actually be getting all of the content. I try to put out one of those about every week or so uh, to more or less success. So if you're waiting for these larger episodes to come out, you might be missing some. So please uh, subscribe to get all of the content uh, that we're putting out here. Uh, So uh, going forward uh, on this episode, again, we're going to be dealing with the Munis Triplex. Enjoy the show. When the scriptures speak of the office of mediator and redeemer in general, and of the Christ, that is the anointed one in specific, there are actually three offices being addressed, which are called the munis triplex, or the threefold municipality or office. It's proper to see these in germinal form from the very beginning with the first man, Adam, that they took root in the nation of Israel, and that they find their fullest expression in the second man, Jesus. These three offices are that of prophet, priest, and king. It is in these three offices that Christ discharges his role as mediator and redeemer. This paper will attempt to address these offices of our Lord from the redemptive historical perspective in which all three offices are eternally held by the Son, but first established in the garden and then find a more concrete and formal expression in the governance of Israel. Yet in both cases, these offices are not merely for the benefit of the community, but rather are indicators pointing forward to the future realization in Christ. It should be noted before too much is said that there is some level of debate among theologians on several aspects of how Christ discharges these three offices. 
There are varied views of just how Christ acted in these offices before his incarnation as well as after his incarnation, such as uh, Bellarmine and Petavius, who claimed that Christ could not have been mediator prior to his incarnation. Others doubt whether or not he held the office of prophet or merely acted in the manner of one. There has also been some debate of if a certain office can be rightly subsumed under another, such that in the case of the Socinians, who believed that the priestly work of Christ was actually a facet of his kingly office. Finally, the office of king itself seems to have the most diverse views due to its incontrovertible link to eschatology. Some, such as Schaefer, even purposefully limit their discussion of this office within the segment of the Munis Triplex, and handle it more completely in their later segment on eschatology and the millennial kingdom in which it is believed by them that Christ will reign as king on the reconstituted throne of David. This would be a far more dispensational theme. For this paper, the majority reform position will be taken. That is, that Christ is, in his eternal person, both prophet, priest, and king, and thus executes the munis triplex eternally before his incarnation as well as eternally after his glorification. We also know that the fact that they were established on earth ought to lead us to the conclusion that they are patterned after Christ to lead us to him, rather than that he was merely the final link in their successive chain. As Baving states, quote, He does not just perform prophetic, priestly, and kingly activities, but is himself in his whole person, prophet, priest, and king. He bears all three offices at the same time and consistently exercises all three at once, both before and after his incarnation in both the state of humiliation and that of exaltation, end quote. We will then explore the manner in which Christ discharges each of these offices in a loose chronological order. We will first survey how he holds them in his pre-incarnate state, then during his earthly incarnation, and finally after his glorification and for all eternity. In this manner, the entirety of Christ's ministry in these offices will be addressed. First, Christ the prophet. All too often, it's thought that the office of prophet is merely a foretelling ministry of predicting future events, either in the near future or quite far off. While it's accurate that this is one function of the office of prophet, it would be incomplete as a view of this office to hold that this is all that it consists of. In addition to the act of foretelling future events, the prophet also foretells the words and the will of God to the people of God. A proper, though general, understanding of this office may include the idea that the prophet stands between God and man and faces manward. It is with this understanding that we will approach this office. The Hebrew word primarily translated as prophet is navi and actually means to boil up or to boil forth as in a fountain, and then came to later mean to pour forth words like one that is divinely inspired and is frequently used in the passive tense verb, presumably due to the fact that the Hebrews saw the prophet as one who was acted upon and moved by God. This view is still clearly held up to the time of the apostles when Peter declares, quote, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, end quote, for 2 Peter 1, 20, 21. 
we see this very first instance of the office of prophet in its seed form in the ministry of Adam of the, uh, in the garden. Like all of the three offices, Adam fulfills the office in a basic manner and should not be expected to meet all of the requirements of the office that will blossom throughout redemptive history, such as faithful predictions that are found in Deuteronomy 18.22. Yet we should recognize that just as the tabernacle and the temple were foreshadowed in the garden, the gospel of Christ was pre-announced in the fall. So too, the offices of Christ are present in the person and work of Adam. Adam, in his state of rectitude, was capable of knowing the truths about God and stood in the very presence of the Almighty, listening to his words, literally receiving the revelation night and day. Adam was the first to have revelation granted to him, and it was his duty to relay this message to the people that God had created, which at the time was only Eve. Whether or not Adam adequately functioned in this office based on Eve's response to the serpent, in which she had altered the previous words of God in a kind of Mishnah, are futile this side of heaven. It's possible that Adam had added the precaution to not touch the fruit, or that Eve had simply added it herself when speaking to the serpent. Regardless of this, we see that Adam is the first human to be given the duty of forth-telling. Yet the fall corrupted his sinless state and broke his ability to perfectly know and receive the revelation of God because he was no longer in the presence of God and his mind was marred by the noetic effects of sin. We then come to the office of prophet in early Israel. The first official prophet into Israel was Moses, who was responsible for speaking the word and will of God to the Israelites while in their bondage to Egypt and then further during the time in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 22, Moses gives the most basic modes by which this office will function for the nation, as well as giving explicit prophecy to the coming of a future prophet like himself. You can also see my prior paper and episode dealing with Jeremiah as a prophet like Moses. The manner in which Jesus is the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18, 15, and 17 will be discussed in the section on the office after the incarnation, but for now, it's beneficial to simply note that he is mentioned here in the first passage, which lays out the two different functions of a true prophet of God, and that while he is the cumulative prophet, the prophets before him were to be patterned after him. This passage tells us that a true prophet was appointed by God himself in verse 18, and that if someone attempted to carry out this office without this appointment, God would demand from him his life in verse 20. As Robertson states, quote, The person of the prophet substitutes for the presence of the Almighty God himself. The small single voice replaces all the fearsome signs that accompanied the theophany at Sinai, end quote. Next, we're told that the prophet's first duty was to speak to the people on behalf of God. Quote, I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them, and I will command him. End quote. Verse 18. It was the role of the prophet to deliver the revelation of God. This was to be carried out with the most utmost reverence and care, for the very life of the prophet hung in the balance of whether he performed this duty faithfully. Finally, we are told that the other work of the prophet was to foretell events. This was not explicit, but rather was implied by God's response to the question of how the people may know if it was indeed the word of God that was spoken. God replied that, quote, If the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken, the prophet has spoken presumptuously, verse 22, end quote. We see... 
sorry, we can see that some of the pronouncements of the prophet are to, quote, come to pass or come true and thus must be foretelling of what God has revealed about the near or far future. While the sensationalist in all of us focuses in on the foretelling ministry of the prophets, Schaefer reminds us that the ministry of the prophets in the Old Testament was primarily, quote, that of the reformer and patriot. He sought the restoration to covenant blessings of the people who were under the covenant curses, end quote. Thus, it was the first duty of the prophet to to foretell that is the primary function of the prophet. Robertson also points this fact out to us when he reminds us that it was not Moses' main role at Sinai to predict the future of Israel, but rather, quote, to declare God's will as it was revealed to him, end quote. Thus, even when a prophet was foretelling future events, this was merely a specific application of his ministry of foretelling, in which he was proclaiming a revelation that God had granted to him to the people. Like all later prophets, not only did Moses reveal the will of God for the moral purity of the people, but he also proclaimed many of the blessings that God was promising to his people. Burkhoff reminds us that, quote, It is also evident from Scripture that the true prophet of Israel typified the great coming of the prophet of the future, and that he was already functioning through them in the days of the Old Testament, end quote. The Westminster Larger Catechism in question 43 answers that, quote, Christ executeth the office of prophet in his revealings to the church in all ages, the whole will of God in all things concerning their edification and salvation, end quote. However, we may now ask the question, how does Christ execute the office of prophet before his incarnation? According to 1 Peter 1.11, it was the Spirit of Christ that was in the prophets giving them revelation, specifically revelation concerning himself. Hodge states that, quote, consequently, as mediatorial prophet, he is the original fountain of revelation of which all of the other prophets are the streams. He is the prophet of all prophets, the teacher of all teachers, end quote. We can further see this in such passages as Isaiah 49, 1-7 and 55-9, through 9, that the prophet Isaiah clearly spoke from the identity of Christ. Huxima even reminds us that the words of the Redeemer in Isaiah 61, 1-3 are explicitly attributed to the words and ministry of Christ in the New Testament, for example, Luke 4, 18, and we cannot say that these words are fulfilled in any way by Isaiah himself. We know that David in Psalm 22 likewise spoke from the identity of Christ on the cross. We may even grant that in a passage which speak of the angel of the Lord, that we are witnessing the act of direct revelation being given by Christ to his people, such as the burning bush and, uh, and Moses in Exodus 3.2, and the revelation to Hagar concerning the future of Ishmael in Genesis 16.1-14, as well as many others. It seems clear that Jesus was acting as a prophet to his people long before the Incarnation. In fact, when John tells us in his opening chapter to the gospel that Jesus had come into the world, Jesus was already functioning prior to that as the Word. He was the, quote, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, John 1, 14. 
He then adds in 118 that, quote, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known, end quote. From this, Schaefer correctly comments, quote, Whenever truth about the person of God or his message is to be disclosed, the second person as a logos is the one who reveals, end quote. We then come to the discharge of the office during the incarnation of Christ on earth. We must first recognize that the prophet who was to come and was to be like Moses, as promised in Deuteronomy 18.15-17, was not merely a New Testament invention reinterpreting the words of Moses. The people of Jesus' day were actually aware of this coming prophet and seemingly were constantly on the lookout for him. They recognized that the Christ was to be the prophet. Even the Samaritan woman said, quote, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things, in quote John 4.25. Just two chapters later in John 6.14, when the Jews wanted to make Jesus king by force, which also indicates that Messiah was seen not only as prophet but as king, they announced, which we'll get to later, they said, quote, this is indeed the prophet who is coming to the world, end quote. In fact, Jesus himself declared this truth when he had resurrected and, be, quote, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself, end quote, Luke 24, 27. Christ even called himself a prophet explicitly when he stated that, quote, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household, end quote, in Matthew thirteen fifty seven. We also know from Acts 3, 22-23, and then again in Stephen's testimony before the Jewish council, that the Deuter that Deuteronomy 18, 15-17 promise of a prophet like Moses was specifically applied to Christ. Yet, how is it that Christ functions as prophet during his incarnation? That is, how is his ministry that of revelation from God to man? First, Christ himself asserts that his message is given to him by the Father, and it is by the Father's authority that he speaks. While such passages as John 7, 16, 8, 28, 12, 49 to 50, and others have been used as platforms to question how the Son of God could uh, be God and still submit to the authority of the Father and yet remain God, it is clear that the intent of these passages is not to speak of the makeup economically, or sorry, ontologically of the Trinity, but rather to the fact that Christ is the, quote, prophet par excellence, end quote, who foretells the words of the will of God to his people. It was a common occurrence that people took note of the teaching of Jesus because, unlike the other rabbis, he spoke with authority, such as Matthew 7.29 and Mark 1.27. While he spoke the message the Father had given him, he frequently began with statements like, Truly, truly, I say to you. By hearing these words, God's people hear the words of God, for he is himself the originator of the divine word. We know, as per Deuteronomy 18.22 requirement, that the mighty works of Christ serve to validate the message of Christ. There was nothing that Christ had spoken that was not from God and did not come to pass, save those things that are reserved for the last days. This should bolster our hope in these yet-fulfilled promises as well, uh, that because Christ is the true prophet whose words must come to bear, all that has promises has already been assured. 
It is with little doubt that Jesus was called a prophet so frequently during his earthly ministry, such as Matthew 21:11 and 46, Luke 7:16, Luke 24:19, John 3:2, John 4:19, 6:14, 7:40 and 9:17. We now move on to how Christ functions as our prophet following his ascension and glorification. Schaefer points out in Acts 1.1, Jesus only began to preach, implying that there, were, that there was more to his teaching uh, and revealing than what he had all only stated, uh, started here on earth. This reinforces the idea that Christ continues to function as prophet in and through his messengers. In John 6.13, we're told that it is only after Christ leaves that we will receive the Holy Spirit, who is, the guide, who is to guide us into all truth, and that the Spirit does not speak by his own authority, but will speak only what he hears. Owen states that Christ continues as our prophet first and, sorry, quote, first internally and effectually by his Holy Spirit, writing his law on our hearts, secondly, outward and instrumentally by the word preached, end quote. It is vital to our understanding of the power behind the proclamation of the word and the illumination of the scriptures that we understand the continued execution of the office of prophet by Christ. Bavink concludes his section on the office of prophet by stating, quote, to teach, to reconcile, and to lead, to instruct, to acquire, and to apply salvation, wisdom, righteousness, and redemption, truth, love, and God to humility relation. Uh, he is the prophet. End quote. Christ the priest. Christ was not only acting from God towards man, but also had a ministry from man towards God. It is this office of priest that Christians seemingly know the most about, for it is this office which deals with Jesus' sacrificial death and his continual intercession to the Father. One fascinating correlation of this office to the previous office of prophet is found in Exodus 7.1, where Aaron, who would be the founder of the, Levit the Levitical priesthood, is called by God to be the prophet for Moses to Pharaoh. While the offices are often regarded as mutually exclusive in the governance of the Old Testament Israel, it is clear that from the earliest times God had planned that these two offices would function under one person, namely Jesus Christ. As with the other offices, the priesthood was not formed first and then worked its way to Christ, but rather it was typologically fashioned after Christ to point to him alone. Our first glimpse at a biblical priest is, as before, found in the garden in the person of Adam. Adam was given charge to work and to keep the garden, the first temple, where God took up his dwelling among his creation. By the way, if you haven't uh, availed yourself of my work on Genesis 1 as a temple text, uh, I recommend going to see that because I developed this, some of this there. Uh, continuing, he was told to avad and shamar the garden in which God had placed him. While these terms have traditionally been translated to work and to keep, the same two verbs were used in conjunction to describe the priestly duties in the tabernacle. They were to keep guard over him before the tent of meeting and to minister at the tabernacle. Numbers 3.7 and cross-reference 4.23-24 and 26. Fesco adds that, quote, Read with the larger context of Scripture, Adam's responsibilities in the garden are primarily priestly rather than agricultural. End quote. 
One final topic of interest that ought to be noted before moving on from the priesthood found in Adam is the vestments that God had made for Adam and Eve before casting them out of the garden. We see Pharaoh close Joseph when he commissions him in Genesis 41 to 42. Aaron receives holy garments in Exodus 40, 13 and Leviticus 8, 13. And finally, Saul clothed David in armor in 1 Samuel 17, 38. It is clear in the ancient Near East uh, that those who are commissioned for service were given garments as a sign of their installment to office. Even further, the priests were not allowed to enter the temple with their genitals exposed, Exodus 20, 26, and 28, 42, most likely a command dating back to Adam and Eve, no longer being allowed to appear naked in God's presence. Yet in all of these, the message of the gospel of Christ was being planted. The vestments foreshadowed the covering that God would provide for his people in the righteousness of Christ. Shortly after this is the book of Genesis. Uh, in the book of Genesis, we encounter a man named Melchizedek, the priest king from Salem. Much can be said about this connection to Christ's priesthood that is of great import. Again, we see this in the book of Hebrews. While tomes, tomes can be and have been written about the priesthood of Melchizedek, this paper will touch only on the major themes relevant for our discussion here. The priesthood of Melchizedek preceded the Levitical priesthood that does, not that does not become established until the time of Moses and Aaron. Due to the fact that Christ is, quote, of the order of Melchizedek, end quote, in Psalms 110 and again in Hebrews, it's clear that, he, that Christ's priesthood predates that of the priesthood of Israel, that is the Levitical priesthood. More discussion will follow on the exact manner in which Christ belongs to this order, as well as met the requirements for the Levitical order, when we address the specific manner in which Christ executes the offices, uh, this office further on. For now, let us simply be content with understanding the predatory nature, the uh, predatory, yeah, the predatory, excuse me, <laughs> let me start over. For now, let us simply be content with understanding the predatory nature of this priesthood over the Levitical one. Yet Melchizedek is not the only foreshadow of the ministry of Christ. In fact, the most beloved truths of this office derive their nature from that of the Levites. The Hebrew term used almost entirely for priest is Kohen. While its original meaning is uncertain, Burkhoff tells us that the word certainly always referred to someone who was serving in an official ecclesiastical function. While the office of prophet had previously faced toward, uh, man, uh, faced toward man from God, the primary function of the priest was the exact reverse. It faced God from man. The prophet's major role was that of the religious teacher who revealed the will of the words of God to the people. The chief duty of the priest, however, was to be man's representative before God, and the, very, uh, and the very nature of this mediatorial role should be a strong indicator to the ministry of the Son. While many passages in the Old Testament may be called upon to map out the duties of the priest in specific detail, it is in Hebrews 5.1 that we obtain the most basic of definitions. The author writes, quote, For every high priest chosen from among the men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin, end quote. 
We see not only that the priest must be commissioned by God, but that the primary duty is to act as a mediator between men and God in regard to ritual observances and sin. Yet we also know that in order to carry this uh, out this basic duty, the priest not only offered sacrifices, but he would also intercede on their behalf, such as Hebrews 7.25, and would bless them in the name of the Lord, Leviticus 9.22. It is these sacrifices and intercessions in which we rightly say that Christ was both the high priest as well as the sacrifice for sin, the unblemished lamb. We may now ask how Christ functioned as priest prior to the Incarnation. We'll quite easily see this office being carried out in his Incarnation and glorified state, but it is usually difficult to understand the manner in which Christ executed the office of priest prior to his humiliation. We can solidly establish this truth, in fact, without elucidating how he actually discharged this office prior to the Incarnation. We see in Hebrews 7.3 that while Christ may be in the order of Melchizedek, it was actually Melchizedek who is made, quote, resembling the Son of God, or, quote, made like the Son of God, end quote, depending on whether it's the ESV or the NASB. Melchizedek, back in the time of Abraham, was fashioned after the Son of God to be priest, Clearly, Christ must have already been functioning in this fashion in order for this to take place, as we have also established previously that Christ discharges these not just in action, but in his very person. We can observe that Melchizedek is, quote, God-designed type of Christ's priesthood, end quote, in the fact that he is a, quote, king of peace without record of father or mother and without recorded beginning or end of days, end quote. While the actual manner in which Christ executed this office is rather obscure before his incarnation, we can see that the office was decreed by the Father long before time in Psalm 110 verse 4. We now arrive at the earthly ministry of Jesus and how he fulfilled the office of priest during his death on the cross, although we should not limit it to merely his death. When John the Baptist saw Christ coming down to the Jordan, he cried out, quote, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, end quote, John 1, We often think of Jesus' baptism as the inauguration of his ministry on earth, yet we should also see it as his commissioning into the priesthood, for Jesus was also meeting the requirements of Numbers 4.3, in which priests were to be consecrated at the age of 30, as well as Numbers 8-7, which describes the manner which this was to be performed. By the way, anecdotal, well, not anecdotally, as an aside, this also answers some of the questions uh, that come up in baptism debates about why Jesus underwent baptism. While Jesus was not a Levite, it is not shocking that God accepted this commissioned priesthood and declared his approval. It is also clear that Jesus offered up a priestly prayer on behalf of his disciples in the Gospel of John, starting in chapter 17, and even interceded on behalf of those crucifying him in Luke 23:34. Nevertheless, much of what we think of when we talk about the priesthood of Christ occurs at his death and at, on the cross. As before, the amount of discussion on this topic alone could cover several volumes, so for our discussion here, let it suffice to state that it is in the same manner as the atonements of the Old Testament sacrificial system that Christ bears the burden of our sins. The Westminster Larger Catechism, question 44, says that he was, quote, a sacrifice without spot to God to be a reconciliation for the sins of his people, end quote, 
And then again in the Shorter Catechism, question 24, that, quote, Christ executeth the office of priest in his once offering up a uh, offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God, end quote. Repeatedly throughout the New Testament, Christ's death is pictured as a sacrifice on behalf of the elect. We see in 1 Corinthians 5-7 that, quote, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, end quote. Later in 2 Corinthians 5.21, we are told exactly why Christ was the Lamb and how his death was effectual when Paul states that, quote, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, end quote. A verse which is closely related to, quote, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, end quote, in Galatians 3.13. John Owen wrote that the death of Christ is effectual first in that, quote, it satisfied the justice of God. Secondly, it redeemed us from the power of sin, death, and hell. Thirdly, it ratified the new covenant of grace. Fourthly, it procured for us a grace here and a glory hereafter, by all which means the peace and reconciliation between God and us is wrought, end quote. This sacrifice, however, was perfect and without need for repetition because of the nature of Christ. Christ himself was without sin. The author to the Hebrews goes to great lengths to show that former priests would have to first offer sacrifices for themselves and then for the people. And this must be done each year, year in and year out. But that because Christ was sinless, the sinless Son of God, the spotless Lamb and the High Priest— that this was done once and for all without need of repetition, such as Hebrews 9, 7, and 14. Here, Christ is seen in the order of Melchizedek, that is, that he is without beginning, end, or replacement. He is our eternal high priest, and we are in never in need of another. Yet, as with the other offices, Christ executes this also into eternity. This is not only clear when the author of Hebrews states that his is an eternal priesthood, but also in that Christ continually brings us into the presence of the Father, and that Christ makes persistent intercession on our behalf. The curtain in the temple has been torn, and by, uh, by Christ, we can come into the presence of God. Indeed, in a very real sense, we are, we are the temple in which God resides, and Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 6.19 when he tells us that our bodies, by the way, corporately this referring to the church, are the temple of the Holy Spirit sorry, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The author of Hebrews tells us again that we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, end quote, Hebrews 10, 19. Not only does Christ grant us access to the presence of God, but he also ministers in our, on our behalf to God through intercessions, through, quote, his continual soliciting of God on our behalf, begun here in fervent prayers, continued in heaven by appearing as our advocate at the throne of grace, end quote. Christ, quote, always lives to make intercession for them, end quote, Hebrews 7.25. And Paul says that Christ is the only one who, quote, intercedes for us, end quote, in Romans 8.34. The verb used in both cases is into, uh, I'm going to butcher this, is into gexano, and means not only to ask of someone, but to approach them and to ask for it. 
In both cases, Christ makes intercessions based on his previous death and sacrifice for sins. Burkhoff reminds us that we cannot divorce the ministry of intercession from the ministry of atonement. He says, quote, They are but two aspects of the same uh, redemptive work of Christ. The essence of the intercession is atonement, and the atonement is essentially an intercession, end quote. Because of this, the atoning and intercessory work of Christ are so interlinked, it is proper for Burkhoff to add that, quote, Christ intercedes for all those for whom he has made atonement and for those only, end quote. Finally, it is clear that Christ is the only one who is the mediator between men and God. Paul tells us that, quote, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, end quote, 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6. Again, the mediatorial role of Christ Jesus is in the intercession is based on the historical fact of the vicarious death of Christ on the cross to atone for the sins of the elect. This, again, is vital for us to understand. Huxma reminds us that it is, quote, the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ, and that righteousness absolutely alone is the sure basis of our hope in God, our salvation, and our eternal peace, end quote. Christ as King As before, the office of king is not without overlap of the previous offices. Melchizedek was not merely a priest, but was a priest-king. Psalm 110, which speaks of the Messiah being a priest in the order of Melchizedek, also states that he is to be, quote, sent forth from Zion, your mighty scepter, end quote, in verse 2. He will, quote, shatter kings, end quote, in verse 5, and, quote, execute judgment among the nations, end quote, verse 6. And Zechariah says that, quote, there shall be a priest on his throne, end quote, in Zechariah 6.13. In Israel's governance, the three offices were never to be held by one person. Yet in these passages, we see them clearly foretelling that the Messiah will indeed embody all three offices. Yet, when we are talking about the kingship of Christ as mediator, the regnum oikonic, o- Oeconicum, uh, we should not confuse his kingship that he possesses with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity. As with the previous two offices, we again find the first establishment of the office of king on earth in the garden. We see that Adam is given authority over all of creation, not only in his subduing of it, but in his exercising of dominion but also that he was given the role of naming the animals. Adam is vice-regent of God within creation and is appointed to rule over it. Of all the offices, the kingship of Christ seems to have the most diversity of views among theologians, as mentioned before. While some deny that Jesus was king before his incarnation, others deny that Jesus was king during his incarnation, and still others deny the kingship of Christ in present day, while further still others do not believe that Christ will have an earthly throne, this sign of the final judgment. Per usual, to adequately answer these questions in this paper would be a futile attempt, seeing as many books have been written on the subject. While we'll address these areas, they will be admittedly excuse me, admittedly brief. First, as with the other offices, we can say that Christ is king not as an exercise of work, but also based on his very nature. 
While we cannot say that Christ discharges as the office of king by his participation in the Trinity and its ultimate rule over creation, we can say that Christ was appointed king over creation. We see in Psalm 2.6 that God set up the Son as king in Zion, his holy hill, long before the incarnation and the nations were commanded to swear allegiance to him. We can even infer that when the Israelites demanded a king in 1 Samuel 12.12 and denied that God was their king, that they were denying the immediate kingship of Christ. For this is not speaking of God's sovereign rule over all creation generally, but his specific reign over his chosen people, the very aspect that designates the kingship of Christ. At the birth of Christ, it was announced that he was the king of the Jews in Matthew 2.2. Yet unlike the kings previously that ruled over Israel, Christ was now the true theocratic king, entirely faithful to the Lord, quote, subject to his will and designated to direct all things to God's honor, end quote. It is undeniable that Christ was king while on earth. He claimed to be king before Pilate in Matthew 27.11 and John 18.37. He died under the accusation of attempting to be king in Matthew 27.37. And he was seen by the people as king and heir apparent to the throne of David in John 12.13. Jesus taught on behalf of the kingdom to bring people into citizenship in his kingdom. And when Christ returns, he is called King of King and Lord of Lords in Revelation 19.16. Martin Luther spoke of those who attempted to deny that Christ was king presently, quote, imagining just as foolishly that Christ sits idly somewhere and waits for the judgment day and when he, uh, when he will thunder against sinners, end quote, that, quote, on the contrary, we must hold that he is working. We must believe that he rules and fights, that he has a throne and a scepter, preserving and bestowing righteousness, and that he does all this daily and with great power in the church. End quote. We must see that Christ is ruling as king over his church presently. He has purchased us already to be his people, and we are called a kingdom in Revelation 1.6 and a holy nation in 1 Peter 2.9. We are told that we are ruled over by Christ, who is, quote, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in this age and in the age to come in Ephesians 1.21. And that he is, quote, head of all things to the church, end quote, in Ephesians 1.22. This headship is not synonymous with one who merely leads or guides, but is rather this term follows hard on the heels of the absolute authority given to Christ in 1.20-21 and shows that Christ is head over the church by authority and rule in a very judicial manner. We also observe that the kingdom rule of Christ was already present in the time of Jesus and the apostles, such as in Matthew 12, 28, where Jesus announces the presence of the kingdom as evidenced by his exorcism of demons, as well as in Luke 17, 21, where Jesus says explicitly, quote, Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, end quote. Yet when we speak of the kingship of Christ, we, also, we are also speaking in a more tangible terms in which Christ rules over his church specifically. Owen states that Christ's kingly office is a twofold power. Quote, First, his power of ruling in and over his church. Secondly, his power of subduing his enemies. End quote. Surely Owen would agree with Huxima that when Paul speaks of Christ as the head of the church, he means it in nearly a judicial uh, uh, sorry, he means it in nearly a judicial and royal manner. 
yet how do we yet how do we see Christ ruling in and over the church? It should support our claims to perform such a ta- uh, such tasks in the power and name of Christ when we understand that we carry them out as ambassadors to our king. When people are converted, it is by the power of Christ who regenerates their will to be obedient. When we when uh When we establish church government and authority, it is only by the authority given to us by Christ as he reigns over uh, uh, that these are accomplished. The second part of Owen's definition, however, speaks to the kingship of Christ as it is exercised at the second coming. While we will not here establish any millennial scheme, it is proper to state that there will be a day when the kingship of Christ will be consummated. There will be a time when the rule of Christ will be the total and absolute over all of humanity without exception or distinction. His kingdom will not end, but for all of eternity as explicitly taught in Scripture, such as Psalm 45.6, 72.17, Isaiah 9.7, Daniel 2.24, Sorry, Daniel 2, 44, 2 Samuel 7.13 and 16, 2 Peter 2, 5-11. Just as Christ is a prophet forever and a priest forever, so too he is a king forever. As Luther said, quote, The kingdom of Christ, therefore, is really this, that he rules in this life and after this life will fully confer righteousness and eternal life. End quote. Conclusion It has been seen that Christ's office of mediator between man and God functions in the munis triplex of Christ. He exercises the office of prophet, of priest, and of king, not only from before creation of the world and before his incarnation, but also during his humiliation on earth and after his glorification into eternity. As prophet, Christ is our sole source for revelation of the mind and will of God. As priest, he is our only hope for salvation and intercession to God. And as as king, he is our sole authority and will guard and protect us from all of our enemies. Bavink ends his section on the offices with this statement, quote, Though a king, he rules not by the sword, but by his word and his spirit. He is a prophet, but his word is power and really happens. He is a priest, but, but lives by dying, con- conquers by suffering, and is all-powerful by his love. He is always all things in conjunction, never the one without the other, mighty in speech and action as a king, and full of grace and truth in his royal rule. End quote. It should be uh, uh, it should be our aim it should be our aim to never lose sight of any office or place one as of more import over the other as has been the habit of the church in the past. Each of these offices Christ performed before even our creation, and should prompt us to glorify him because he was proactively achieving for us our redemption long before man was even created for the fall. In this, we know that God does all things and powerfully orders redemptive history for his glory, and the munis triplex of Christ ought to cause us to stop and marvel at the mighty sovereign works and wonders of our God. Thank you again for joining us on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to email me at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot, or sorry, at gmail.com. Visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or visit the Freed Thinker group page on Facebook. 
Again, uh, subscribe to this wherever you get your podcasting needs met uh, so that you can get uh, not only this special content, but also all other content that we put out. Again, thank you for joining us. Good night and God bless.